Metal Fanboy, episode 45. everybody, Mario Francisco Robles MFR here with you, and this is the 45th edition of the Old Fanboy Podcast. Wow, it has been a week, folks. It has been a week, and it's not even done yet. It's really technically been five days, but I think I, I've lived several weeks worth of living in just the last five days. Um, Revengeofthefans.com opened on Monday. And I've had to apologize to so many people this week. You know, so many, sorry I didn't respond to your text, sorry I didn't answer your call, sorry it took three days to reply to an email, sorry I didn't feed our children, I'm kidding about that last part. But you know, the site has just consumed my life since Monday, and I gotta tell you, it feels great. Uh, Listen, I'm exhausted. I'm barely sleeping. I'm pretty sure I've stressed myself out so much that I'm prematurely balding, uh, perhaps more than I was before, and uh, I've never felt better somehow. It feels amazing to be sharing this site with you guys. The feedback has been, I mean, I'm a little overwhelmed and I don't want to get all sappy on you here, but I've had people from all walks of life come to me and say, hey, this site looks great. Keep up the amazing work. We can't wait to see what comes next. You know, I've had listeners say it. I've had relatives say it. I've had friends I haven't spoken to in years say it. I've had industry people that I didn't even expect for the site to be on their radar yet tell it to me. I'm telling you, the other day I reached out to someone who, you know, I was trying to get confirmation on a story, on a scoop that I'm working on, and this is someone who is high up the food chain at a particular studio, who's working on films that, you know, blow me away. This is someone who I have a ton of respect for, and I'm just asking them about to comment on something or, or to you know, what their feedback is, and they volunteered out of the blue. By the way, the site looks great. It looked, you know, keep up the great work, whatever. I'm like, wait a minute, you visited the site? Wow, thanks. You know, I, I, it, it just, the site is on people's radar and I'm just, it's a lot to process, you know, and I, I've got this great team writing stories every day and I have, you know, I, I, I just, I'm probably just stammering now. I, I'm just, a, I'm a little flabbergasted. I really am. But Revenge of the Fans is here. It's been crazy, you know, handpicking all the stories that you're reading, editing all the stories that you're reading, contributing pieces of my own, getting the Revengers podcast off the ground, which, by the way, episode one hit on Tuesday. No, hit on uh, Wednesday. And the feedback so far also has been exceedingly positive. So, you know, it's been a ton of work, and I feel great about it. Thanks to everyone who has made Revenge of the Fans Week 1 such a success. Um, And I also got to thank my boy John Crabtree. You know, he hasn't been able to contribute as much as he would like this week because it just so happens that we launched at a time when his day job needs him an exorbitant amount of time each day. So once he gets through this little period, you can expect a lot more of his columns and a lot more of his presence on the site. But for this week, I basically had to carry this puppy on my shoulders, and uh, I, I think we're doing pretty well. You know, I already have a scoop that was covered by practically every major geek site, and... People are, are, are coming to the site. They're commenting on the articles. The, the, the thing's alive. It's alive. Sorry, I'm screaming. But um, yeah, so anyway, just thank you to everyone who has taken the time to uh, visit revengeofthefans.com and to check out the Revengers podcast, which is now available on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, and soon elsewhere. So if you have not yet checked out the one where I have you know two new co-hosts, that's uh, that went pretty well. I'm pretty I'm pretty happy about that. But all right, enough about me. Uh, let's talk a little bit about movies. Let's talk about what's going on in the world. 
of entertainment. Uh, something I mentioned on, on The Revengers, which I didn't go on for too long because I, I wanted to make sure that Vanessa and Brett had ample time to, to fully uh, introduce themselves to you, is, you know, I saw The Shape of Water, and I just need to take a moment to talk about that a little bit, okay? If you have not yet seen Guillermo del Toro's latest, uh, you really owe it to yourself. Um, I, I, I was floored. I, I saw it last week mainly because, you know, the buzz around it was good, and I got the screener from SAG. I had to put in my votes today for the SAG Awards, and I wanted to check it out. So, you know, my expectations were kind of, you know, I didn't, I didn't know what to expect. I knew it looked really well. It looked really good, and I knew that the buzz around it was good, but I didn't know a ton, and I, I didn't go in expecting to have my jaw on the floor the whole time. I just, you know, I'm like, all right, let's, let's check this out. And my goodness, that movie is beautiful. You know, like I said on The Revengers, I mean, you could watch it on mute because the visuals are so masterfully orchestrated. And be, more than anything, I was super impressed with the way he uses the camera. Now, I know that sounds very sort of elementary. He uses the camera, what everyone uses a camera. But the way he uses it, as it's not just there to capture the story. It's there to participate in the actual storytelling. I'm telling you right now, similar to what Edgar Wright did last year with Baby Driver, where the camera and the way things were staged, you could tell that everything was like masterfully you know, rehearsed and meticulously coordinated. So there's this synergy, almost a musicality, so the way the camera pans and the way it moves in conjunction with the way the actors are moving. And you could tell that a lot of tender, loving care was put into staging these scenes. And a lot of rehearsal must have happened to make sure that the camera was moving at the right rate and that the actors were staying within frame and doing all their things within these marvelous tableaus that, that Del Toro created. You know, it's just... I was blown away. I mean, the, 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 the film to me is a, it's a technical marvel. It's an emotional marvel. And it's so incredibly creative. You know, because I, 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 the other is I've been, I've been paying extra attention to camera movements lately, ever since I checked out that Spielberg documentary on HBO. Because I, you know, I, I always sort of took it for granted. You know, and I, I almost feel like other directors do too. You know, in terms of camera work, in terms of, you know, more often than not, we think of the camera as just something there to capture the moment. It's there to have the two characters there speaking and you want to see the angles and you want to see them speaking to one another. But it's mainly there to capture. Very few directors use the camera to actually participate in the narrative. And, you know, Spielberg is a master of that, and I think he, you know, he's an unsung hero when it comes to that, because of all the different things people discuss about his movies, you know, few people, unless you're a real hardcore cinephile, really have a, an affection for the way he uses the camera. So I, the idea of that has been on my mind a lot lately, and when I saw The Shape of Water, I'm like, whoa, here's exactly what, what, what everyone's talking about with this stuff. So... Just definitely check out The Shape of Water if you get an opportunity. Uh, aside from that, you know, I haven't really had a ton of time to, to check out new entertainment. I actually, you know, I, I, I dipped my toe in the water of Ash versus Evil Dead, uh, the Stars you know, Network series that is in, you know, sort of a sequel TV series to the Evil Dead movies, the original Sam Raimi Evil Dead movies and Army of Darkness. And that's been a lot of fun. Um, you know, my, my wife's a huge fan of those movies. She's the one who actually introduced me to Evil Dead because, you know, listen, I married a cool chick. What can I say? She's the one who got me into that. I, I went a good 28 years of my life without ever seeing an Evil Dead movie. And then she, you know, she, she rectified that, that sin. So I checked out Evil Dead a few years ago. My fandom for it was pretty good. I, I actually really liked the remake also. I thought it was pretty scary, the one that came out. I think that was, uh, was that F. Javier Gutierrez? I'm not sure. I think so. But uh, yeah, so I, you know, I figured I would check out the series because, you know, my wife loves it. You know, that property. And just a little bit of trivia. One of the leads is an old high school friend of mine, Ray Santiago. We went to the high school performing arts together here in the city. We did 
a production of a chorus line together. He's a good dude. He's been in a bunch of stuff, too. He was in one of the Meet the Parents movies. He plays, like, Ben Stiller's Hispanic son. And he was in Girl Fight with, uh, I believe, Michelle Rodriguez. Yeah, he, he's been around. He's been around. And it's great to see him land this huge part in, in a popular series, which is about to enter its third season. So I'm like, you know what? I got to check out this show. I got to see how Ray's doing. By the way, I'm planning on getting him for uh, an interview on the podcast soon. So stay tuned for that. But, you know, my thoughts on the series are thumbs up. You know, it, it, it's, I mean, I love that it, it more or less carries on in the Evil Dead tradition in terms of its horror, but it's also sort of ridiculous and pulpy and over the top, and there's ample amounts of humor, and it's it's got a sort of campy tone, but like, you know, when it's creepy, it's really creepy, and when it's funny, it's hilarious. And, you know, Bruce Campbell is just in his element, as always, as the character of Ash, I mean... You know, it's one of those things where the you, you can't imagine anyone else playing Ash. And that's why I was so happy for the remake. They didn't bother hiring a new Ash. They just made different characters because there is no Ash without Bruce Campbell. So seeing him in all his glory back as that back in that role and 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 really sort of hamming it up and sinking his teeth into it, that's a lot of fun. And you know what else is fun? Dropping DC stories. It's it's one of my favorite things to do because, you know, I love me some DC entertainment and you guys seem to love whenever I, I tackle it. So that's why this week there's been a lot of that. You know, earlier in the week, I wrote a story about the, uh, the canon, the continuity for Matt Reeves, the Batman, sort of clarifying because there were rumors that it was going to be set beyond the DCU. And, you know, that's just not true. And also just, you know, gave an update on the whole Jake Gyllenhaal situation where he's still basically, you know, sitting in the wings waiting for some sort of official deal to be struck here that'll finally see Affleck depart the role and him take over. But also, you know, there's um, today I'm going to be publishing a story about the slate, you know, because, you know. Yesterday, I wrote about the fact that there are upwards of 20 to 20, it's like around 21 movies that have been announced in some facet that people are expecting from the DC universe. And, you know, in actuality, there's really under 10. And in real actuality, brass taxes, there's really about five or six. So I'm going to be writing about that today. So be sure to visit Revenge of the Fans in order to find out about that. But, you know, something I'm very happy to talk about today is the fact that, you know, we're not just going to get a Superman movie. I mean, I'm hearing that we're going to get an announcement about a proper Man of Steel 2, and we're also going to find out that he's popping up in another one of these movies that is coming out. And I don't mean Flashpoint. So we're going to talk about that a little bit, too. I You know, I... Uh, it's, it's an exciting time to be a Superman fan. And I would even say it's a very exciting time to be a DC fan because after Justice League, you know, everything looked like it was up in the air. It looked like with the film sort of falling on its face, some people were talking about blow it up. Some people were talking about it's time to do a reboot. You know, my boy Rick Shue over there at Batman on Film was saying, all right, well, this is the last time we're ever, ever going to see Henry Cavill as Superman. But really... In recent days, recent weeks, it's become very, very clear. The DCU ain't going anywhere. And I know some of you, like Aaron Verola, you're probably rolling your eyes. You, you know, Some of you probably wish that it would get rebooted and that they would blow the thing up and start over again. But you know what? For better or worse, they're not going to do that. What they're going to try to do is course correct. They're going to try to trim the fat, cut out the things that weren't working, and try to save this thing. So they're going to try to salvage it rather than throwing the baby out with the bathwater and starting over again. You know, and I say for better or worse because they, they kind of have no choice at this point, if you think about it. You know, they already have Aquaman more or less completed. They already have Wonder Woman 2, which everyone is dying for. They, you know, they have Suicide Squad 2 that already has a, a reputable director and Margot Robbie talking about it and Jared Leto still on contract to be the Joker. And, you know, th they are already very established in this current 
canon, in this current continuity. It's not like what happened with Sony and the Amazing Spider-Man series where, you know, they, they had one and two and they want they had stuff they wanted to do, but they realized, you know what? We're not that invested. We can really just pull the plug on this and go over to Marvel Studios and try to come up with a better arrangement. With DC, they've already got the next movie lined up. They've already got the, you know, they're already too far into this to just suddenly go, all right, we're going to pull the plug. That would be a huge wide scale admittal of defeat. That would just be, you know, that would be a PR disaster if they actually just hit reboot on all of these. So, you know, it's becoming very, very clear that there's not going to be some sort of large scale reboot. There's just going to be a, a course correction into a better direction. So I, for one, am happy about that. I, for one, say bring it on. Let's formally get into the new era of films, a, a whole new swath of films that is going to come out that, are, that sort of echo Wonder Woman's approach, not in terms of tone necessarily, but in terms of putting the characters off on their own islands, letting filmmakers tell interesting stories about them, have very, very minimal connective tissue with the rest of the world, save for little things like those Legion of Doom, you know, post-credit sequences that I told you are, are on the horizon, including one for Aquaman. You know, save for those little things, let these characters thrive and flourish on their own, get people excited about the DC brand again, and then every four years or so, you make a movie like a Flashpoint that you know that that gets the band back together. It looks like that's what they're gonna do, you know, because let's see, Justice League came out in 2017. Flashpoint may not come out till 2020, 2021, maybe. So that gives three or four years for them to just establish these solo franchises again. Instead of doing what they were doing haphazardly between 2016 and 2017 which was rush everything. You know, they threw a bunch of stuff into uh, Batman v Superman. Even Suicide Squad 2 was a bit of a mess. Then Justice League, obviously, you know, there was a lot of problems with that because, again, they were rushing towards this shared universe, these team-up movies, as opposed to just really building these things up organically. So now they're going to do that. And I, for one, am excited all right, and I'm not afraid to say that. All right, I know that I, I, you know, I often get pegged for being too hard on DC and for being so cynical and for being a Marvel tard or some sort of nonsense along those lines. But I'm optimistic. I really am, and I think you should be too. So keep your eyes open for some big announcements on the horizon, for some rumors and reports and scoops that I'm working on over for Revenge of the Fans. There is some really, truly quite exciting things on the horizon if you're a DC fan. Now, if you're someone who is more on like, I'm the I, I'm a Zack Snyder DC fan, then you know, then the news on that front isn't great because you know I, I've argued many a time that most of the fans of Zack Snyder's aren't actually DC fans. You know, they are fans of his particular branch of the DC universe, which, you know, the thing is that, that, that branch is now, they, they chopped it off. All right. You know, the, that the, they're done with that era. They're done with the BVS MOS phase of things. They're, the, they're moving full steam into a whole new era. That's very different, much more optimistic and joyful and, and, and comedic. And I, mean, I don't want to say comedic. That's probably, you know, that probably made some of you cringe. But in terms of just a general, lighter, more playful, hopeful, optimistic tone, you know, think Wonder Woman. Think what Justice League attempted to do despite the fact that, you know, it got so mangled in post-production, it was hard to find, you know, make a cohesive movie out of it. But the tone itself is going to echo the type of tone they're going for. Because like I said on Twitter to someone, I think it was yesterday or the day before, you know, people, mass audiences don't really want deconstructions of these characters. You know, trying to deconstruct Batman and Superman in much the way that Snyder did last year in Dawn of Justice, that's like trying to deconstruct Bugs Bunny and Mickey Mouse. You know, these are staples of pop culture, and they are loved and treasured and a beloved part of our collective consciousness for a reason. So the fact that he came in right away and, and wanted to 
you know, twist our ideas on these characters and spin them on their head within the first three movies. You know, granted, by the way, we've learned that it wasn't necessarily his idea to do things at such an accelerated clip. But with that said, ultimately, his movies were less a celebration of them and more a, a deconstruction of them. You know, people, by and large, rejected that. So, you know, I, I think that the the Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny comparison actually, you know, is, is pretty spot on. You know, there's certain pop culture icons that you don't try to tweak quite that much. You know, I mean, listen, you know, it's one thing if you're going to do a, a little sort of, you know, obscure spinoff like that, like that epic Mickey video game that came out for PlayStation or whatnot. You know, if you want to do little, you know, little sidebar Elseworld type things with these characters, that's cool. But the mainstream depictions of these characters have to, you know, stay somewhat true to how people grew up with them, how people know them and love them, and what brought these characters to prominence to begin with. So, you know, the the age of deconstruction is over. The age of hope, optimism, and heroics has officially begun for the DC Universe. And I wish Mr. Snyder nothing but the best of luck. You know, I have nothing against the guy. He, he made some questionable decisions along the way as far as I'm concerned. But, you know, he's got a ton of talent. And I think he would do really well continuing to develop comic book films that are based on more sort of dark horse things. You know, let him make movies like Sandman, for example, or The Crow, or, you know, there's a Spawn movie coming out. He's not involved with that. But I, I mean characters on those tiers, those slightly more obscure, darker, more grown-up, you know, types of films. Give him a, a Hellboy sequel when that eventually comes out. You know, that sort of stuff would be right up his alley. I don't think he has any place trying to make a mass audience please all four quadrant film about Superman, about Wonder Woman, about Batman. I just, you know, I, I, I wish him nothing but good luck in the future, but I think that's where he should be heading. All right. So that's enough about DC for right now. I want to shift gears a little bit over to Star Wars. You know, The Last Jedi just had a very interesting week. It was pulled from every theater in China. And right now, you know, the box office, listen, I'm not, I'm not going to say that $1.2, $1.3 billion is bad. Just like I said on uh, last week's show, you know, no one in their right mind is going to complain about that. But, you know... It looks by and large like the film is is nowhere near as beloved as The Force Awakens. And all I can do right now is share with you my experience, strength, and hope. You know, on The Revengers, I was talking about Luke Skywalker. And, you know, I said some things that struck a chord in them. Because when I, when I met up with Brett and Vanessa last week for sort of a pre-meeting, I brought up Last Jedi. I wanted to see where they stood on it. And they were very much against me. You know, I, I, I'm used to being the minority. That's okay. I, I don't need people to agree with me. And we had a nice sort of spirited debate about The Last Jedi. The same kinds of debates that I've sort of engaged in with Rick Shue and Aaron Verola online. And, you know, I, they were very much in the other camp. That everything was great and they loved Luke Skywalker's... Uh, spoiler alert, everyone. Spoiler, I don't know. It's been about a month. I feel like most of you have seen it. But, you know, someone was upset that I didn't mention a spoiler uh, alert on The Revengers this week. So quick spoiler alert. I'm about to talk a little bit about what happened in The Last Jedi, all right? So Luke Skywalker dies. And Vanessa and Brett were initially, like, totally cool and happy with that. But in talking about it, you know, I, let, let me just share where I'm coming from. This is my show, and... I just got to speak to you from the heart. I still feel like I miss him. I still feel like I didn't get that time with Luke that I was promised. And I have no problem with what Ryan Johnson did, but I feel like it was somewhat short-sighted. And now I don't, I'm not going to count what I'm about to say next against the film. I think it's unfair to judge a film based on how you would have done it. All you can really do is judge the film itself. 
But if we're going to go into this territory now, because I've already judged the film for the film itself. Now this is just me spitballing and, and sharing some of how I feel about this. I personally think that the arc he had in mind for Luke would have been much better and much more poignant if it had played out over the course of two movies instead of one. Because, you know, he had this quote that I read on the on the last show on the Revengers about the fact that, you know, he wanted this to be Luke's movie, that he, he felt like, you know, Luke had to come to grips with the fact that he, as a man alone, couldn't try to help the Resistance with a lightsaber, but the legend of Luke Skywalker could try to help the Resistance, and that ultimately, you know, when he, when he did what he did and, and basically sacrificed his life for it, that cemented the legend of Luke Skywalker and, and all that sort of stuff. And, you know, the, that, that was ultimately why he wanted Luke killed off at the end of episode eight, to give him that sort of dramatic conclusion. But for me, I wish that, that, that his death would have been in episode nine. I think the whole thing would have been far more dramatic and far more powerful if we saw him struggle with the idea of his legacy. I think it would have been better and people would have been far more uh, willing to embrace what happens with Luke if, let's say, in episode 8, he did come out and try to have that lightsaber battle and he tried to live up to what people thought of him. What if he did that and failed? What if he comes out and he has that lightsaber duel with Kylo Ren and, you know, his former student actually gets the better of him and he has to retreat and he goes back to that island and now the, 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 the First Order feels emboldened and the Resistance doesn't know what to do. Their big hero, their Luke Skywalker, came back and failed. And now they have to figure out how do we move forward in a different way we have to, and the same thing that Johnson was trying to do, the whole idea of like, they need to learn to take away how mystical everything is and learn how to find that spark of hope within themselves. Suddenly seeing Luke, you know, not be able to do what they were told he would be able to do would, would give a whole new sense of dramatic conflict as the resistance has to figure out how to, what its place in this galaxy is. And how do we how do we bring forth the type of change that we want without Luke there to be the awesome the, the trump card that shows up and cleans the slate with his lightsaber every time we need him? And then in episode nine, there'd be a lot of soul searching about and that's that would be the movie where Luke comes to grips with the fact that his legend is more important than his lightsaber. And so if something happens there where now, you know, he's learned from his mistake that he can't just show up and fight this thing and, and physically, you know, control and alter the future of the galaxy. And that at the end of nine is when he does that ultimate sacrifice and shows them a different way towards, you know, saving themselves and saving the galaxy. I think that would have been far more potent but the problem is there doesn't seem to be a lot of cohesion from episode to episode. You know, you kind of get the sense that, you know, Ryan Johnson wanted to get all of his ideas into episode eight because there's no guarantee that they would have been paid off the way he would have liked in episode nine. The same way Abrams, you know, made The Force Awakens and then Johnson, you know, picked, you know, picked and chose which elements he was going to, you know, focus on and which elements from The Force Awakens he was going to disregard, like the Knights of Ren and some of the other huger, you know, the, the much larger implications about Rey's heritage and other things. You know, Johnson got to pick and choose what he wanted to keep and what he wanted to discard, and he made his movie the way he wanted and now episode nine, there's going to be this flexibility for Abrams now to go back and similarly pick and choose what he wants to emphasize and maybe change Ray's parentage and do other things. You know, uh, it's like on the one hand, it, you got to give Lucasfilm credit for letting these guys make the movies that they want to make. But on the other hand... I feel like this whole thing would have gone much better, much more smoothly if they had a very specific arc for this trilogy. And it's clear they didn't. 
You know, because they even fired Colin Trevorrow's and, and, and they're having a whole other script written. You know, like, it, it, had there been an agreed-upon outline from the outset, there wouldn't be this tumult with episode nine. You know, they would have known Trevorrow's plan. That Johnson would have known Abrams' plan. Everything would have been worked out way in advance. But it's clear that there is a certain element of winging it between episodes. So... I wish, and that's why I retweeted this something from my friend Paul, the editor-in-chief of Joe Blow, you know, I wish that there had been a more clear and defined path for this trilogy in, you know, in advance of it so that things wouldn't be getting sort of retconned on the spot. Because remember, Johnson said that Ray's parentage is definitely true. What, what he said in Last Jedi is true. Ben Solo was not trying to trick Ray. He was not trying to play psychological warfare with her. He meant it when he said that you are the children of nobodies. And yet, he also says that in Episode 9, Abrams has the flexibility to undo that if he wants. That things are still fluid. And that's what worries me. Things are much too fluid here. I wish, I wish, wish, wish that they had a, a, a firm beginning, middle, and end for this saga. Because had they done that, Luke might have gotten a much more fitting, much more epic, prolonged send-off. Because just going back to the original reason I brought this up, I felt ripped off. I feel like that movie was two and a half hours long and far too little of that runtime was dedicated to Luke and to Rey and to her training and to discovering where this character has been since Return of the Jedi and what, yeah, I just, I feel like we barely scratched the surface and now we're just relegated to Force Ghost Luke in Episode Nine, and that to me is a real bummer. And I'm also kicking around the idea for an op-ed piece about the fact that I think episode eight hurt episode seven. I really firmly believe that the lack of planning and the way Johnson was able to just sort of, you know, pick and choose what he wanted, he retroactively made The Force Awakens a weaker movie. And I really don't like that because I love The Force Awakens, okay? I know it's very nostalgic, I get all that, and I'm actually planning on having a long-form conversation about these movies with Rick Shue, so I'm going to save some of my opinions on the matter for that conversation, but I thought The Force Awakens, have you, as long, if you take away the Starkiller base, which I, uh, that is, to me, a big groan-inducing rehash, overall, I thought the movie was beautiful. I thought it was a great, great bit of Star Wars storytelling, and I loved it. But a lot of it was also going to depend on the follow-up and certain key elements getting explored. And I feel like Johnson, through, through several key decisions he made, retroactively hurt Episode Seven, And that's another reason why having a, a more fully you know, full-fledged, more thought-out plan for these three movies in advance probably would have been the right way to go. And now, before we get into a new segment here for the El Fanboy Podcast, now that the news portion has become its own show, which is what The Revengers is, I'm going to be debuting a brand new segment in just a moment. But before I do, I just want to touch on this week's big news about the Flashpoint Directors. Uh, it's something that I just sort of lightly touched upon in the Revengers because the, uh, the news had just broken. But just to kind of put a little extra perspective on things. So remember, I, I've been telling you guys on the Twitter that January has been set for a while to be a very big month for news, for, for DC fans. You know, my, my insider over at Warner Brothers has been telling me since late November that January, a lot of news is going to drop. And, you know, it's coming true. You know, we have the whole Walter Hamada information that came out where that now he's the president, you know, apparently one of three presidents, as I mentioned last week, of DC Entertainment. We have the whole news about the whole revised power structure there at Warner Brothers in general and how that could bode well for the future of the DC universe. And now we have this, you know, we've got directors for Flashpoint. Flashpoint is... You know, no doubt about it, that is the next 
very, very big movie in the DC universe. You know, obviously Wonder Woman 2 is probably the one with the most hype around it because everyone loved the first Wonder Woman. But Flashpoint, you know, that's going to conceivably be the next time where we have multiple heroes in the same film. And because of the ramifications of the Flashpoint storyline, it could have a huge, huge impact on the franchise as a whole. So now, you know, we've got directors for it, and that's, not, uh, that's no small deal, because that means that the movie really is moving forward. Variety still referred to it as Flashpoint and not The Flash, so they do seem to still be going with that sort of team-up concept where there's going to be, uh, you know, several other heroes in play. We remember we heard a few months ago that there were roles for it for Batman and for Wonder Woman. So, you know, Flashpoint's big, and you know, these people that they hire, Jonathan Goldstein and John Francis Daly, you know, the, their directing resume is a little thin. It really is. But you know what? You know what turned me around a little bit on this? Because I was very sort of tepid. I was very sort of on the fence about their hiring. Um, the trailer for Game Night, we shared it on the site yesterday. And Game Night, you know, that is their second feature film. It's coming up uh, in February, actually. So we're going to get to see the uh, the end result of all that pretty soon. But, you know, it, it's for New Line, which is a subsidiary of Warner Brothers. So it seems like the folks at Warner Brothers really enjoyed what they saw about Game Night. And that's why they're giving them the job. And I got to tell you, uh, the trailer looks good. And it reminds me of Horrible Bosses, which they didn't direct, they wrote. But, you know, in terms of overall tone, I really like that tone, where it's sort of dark, it's humorous, but it's like mature humorous, not poop joke humorous. It's got, you know, action in it. It's got intrigue. And I got to tell you, you know, Game Night is on my radar now. And Flashpoint, you know, I, I'm very intrigued. And the fact that these guys wrote Spider-Man Homecoming really does get me very enthused about this. Because, remember, I thought Homecoming was great. I, I think I liked it more than most. Because I felt like it really sort of had the best balance of all the different elements that make these kinds of movies great. You know, it doesn't touch Logan or Wonder Woman in terms of, you know, 2017 superhero releases. But for me, it's definitely in third place. So in terms of Daly and Goldstein, you know, I'm, uh, count me in. I'm definitely very intrigued by them. And if you haven't seen the Game Night trailer uh, on, on Revenge of the Fans, I strongly suggest that you do. I, I think... I think they're going to be the right fit for this. I've got a good feeling about what they're going to do with Flashpoint. But all right, it is time for the new segment. Ladies and gentlemen, I give you the Elf Fanboy Weekend Forecast. Yes, folks, starting now, every Friday, we're going to have the El Fanboy Weekend Forecast, where we look at the week's new films that are arriving in theaters, how they're looking, critically speaking, how they're looking to do box office-wise, stuff that we'll be able to compare on uh, Tuesday's The Revengers to see how the projections match up with the uh, actuals. And just in general, you kind of try to help you map out where you should spend your time this weekend at the cinema. So this week's top releases include a couple of indie award season darlings and a couple of sort of more mainstream studio pictures. So the big wide releases are Call Me By Your Name, which is now going from a limited run into wide release. There is I, Tanya. There is Phantom Thread, which, by the way, contains the the much Bollywood final performance of Daniel Day-Lewis, so that's kind of a big deal. We've also got 12 Strong, and we've got Den of Thieves. So how are these movies looking right now? You know, the one Call Me By Your Name which with Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer, which has got everyone buzzing around it for all these uh, Academy Award, you know, and Golden Globes, and everyone's all excited about it. Currently, it sits at 96% on Rotten Tomatoes. It is supposedly a phenomenal film. They claim that the critics are basically saying that it offers a melancholy, powerfully affecting portrait of first love 
empathetically acted by Timothy Chalamet and Army Hammer. Then there's I, Tanya, which I saw, by the way. And the reviews for I, Tanya are also very good, 89%. What critics are saying is... Led by strong work from Margot Robbie and Allison Janney, I, Tanya finds the humor in its real-life story without losing sight of its more tragic and emotionally resonant elements. Now, what do I say about it? Because really, that's all that really matters, isn't it? What I think. And I saw it last week, and you know, I think it's a great movie. I uh, Things that just jump out at me is it has so much personality. There is nothing cookie-cutter about this film there's nothing vanilla about this film. There is so much personality on display here, and Margot Robbie is given such an, an opportunity, which she seizes, by the way, an opportunity to shine that, you know, there's just, this whole thing is brimming. I just keep thinking of that personality. The, the movie feels like a person. And in terms of capturing that moment in time in American history and American pop culture history, it really does nail it. I mean, I remember I've never given a damn about figure skating. I didn't before then, and I didn't really after then. But for that period of time when that was going on, where Tanya Harding supposedly had someone whack her her opponent's knee with an eye with, with a steel pipe. I mean, it was such a it was like a wrestling WWE storyline WWF back then, it played out on the international stage. It was riveting stuff. So the movie does a really good job of capturing that moment. Um, yeah, it, the only thing I'll say, as I've said before is that the sort of mockumentary conceit is you know, kind of hit or miss because they, they intercut it with the uh, like confessionals as if you're watching a documentary. And, you know, they kind of go back and forth on that where it's like, all right, is this supposed to be like a documentary or is it supposed to be like a movie? Because there are large portions of the flick, including arguably the most important stretch where there aren't any testimonials and it's just treated like a straight up movie. So it almost feels like maybe they added the mockumentary element after the fact, or like, I don't know what it is, but that, that part is a little hit or miss, and I kind of wish they were more consistent with that. But overall, I thought I, Tanya was a great way to spend a couple of hours. Phantom Thread with Daniel Day-Lewis currently sits at 92% on Rotten Tomatoes. Remember, this is going to be his retirement from acting. Mr. Day-Lew is considered one of the very best actors of his generation. Critics say that Phantom Thread's finely woven narrative is filled out nicely by humor, intoxicating romantic tension, and yet another impressively committed performance from Daniel Day-Lewis. Um, so, yeah, that's going into wide release now, and that's another one of those, uh, you know, award season darlings. Then we got 12 Strong, which is based on a book about uh, the, the first group sent into Afghanistan, the first American military group sent into Afghanistan after the uh, tragedy of September 11th. As of now, there are 69 reviews in, which is fairly limited. It means that the studio is probably trying to minimize the critical damage. Because for a movie with a cast like this, uh, you know, there really should be a much larger, uh, you know, critical consensus here. But with only 69 reviews counted, the, the movie currently sits at 52%. Currently, people are saying 12 Strong has a solid cast, honorable intentions, and a thrilling fact-based story. All of which are occasionally enough to balance a disappointing lack of depth or nuance. So, you know, it looks like it's one of those films that's trying to kind of be in that wheelhouse like Michael Bay's uh, 13 Soldiers and maybe American Soldier, which was a big hit two years ago, and right about this time. It's trying to tap into the people who like those American military movies, essentially. Then you've got Den of Thieves. Den of Thieves has got quite a cast. Um, but right now, just so you know, the... Critic consensus is not kind. Then again, there's only 36 reviews in. It's another one where the studio seems to be trying to limit its, its, its damages here. But with 36 reviews in, it currently it sits at 34% on Rotten Tomatoes. Critics are saying Den of Thieves plays uh, pays energetic homage to classic heist thrillers of the past. Unfortunately, it never comes close to living up to its obvious inspirations. And you know what? It's actually really funny 
that they say that because every time I've seen a trailer or a commercial for Den of Thieves, all I can think about is, hmm, I should go see Heat. It literally just makes me want to go see an older movie. And if you haven't seen Heat, by the way, that is also this week's recommendation, as luck may have it. <clears throat> you know, Heat by Michael Mann is like the seminal 90s heist film. It's got a killer cast with Robert De Niro and Al Pacino, who were still somewhat in their prime at that time. You had Val Kilmer, Tom Sizemore. I mean, it was just, it, it's a great, great heist film. Lots of wonderful performances and interesting twists, a very... There's a very engaging narrative, and Heat really is, you know, in terms of bank heist movies, it's right up there. You know, it's up there with Dog Day Afternoon and, and other, you know, the, the bank heist genre has been explored a lot. And here we are with Den of Thieves looking to go back to that well, and every time I see it, I just think, oh good, I should go home and watch Heat. So that is your recommendation for this week. Go see Heat. But it's, you know, it's kind of unfortunate. You know, I remember Gerard Butler, when he first came on the scene, I had great high hopes for him. But he seems to do nothing but attach himself to turkeys. I don't know who's helping him choose what movies to be a part of, but this is another Gerard Butler movie that looks like, why did anyone agree to do this? Um, and he's not alone, mind you. He's got a you know an interesting cast around him. You know, he, he he's surrounded by Pablo Schreiber, who's a character actor who everyone has seen, even though you may not know his name. Uh, you know, he was on The Wire. He was on Orange Is the New Black. Uh, he he was on, on a show I loved that got canceled way too soon called Lights Out. You know, Pablo Schreiber's you know, he brings the goods. It also stars O'Shea Jackson Jr. That's Ice Cube's son, who rose to such prominence with Straight Outta Compton. You've also got 50 Cent in there. And, you know, it, it, he, they attracted some interesting talent for this thing. It just looks all, like a whole lot of why bother. Uh, in terms of how this is supposedly all going to play out at the box office, well, as luck should have it, it doesn't look like any of these new wide releases are really going to make that much of a dent. Because right now, it's looking like Jumanji, Welcome to the Jungle, is very, very likely to take the top spot and repeat at first place for the third weekend in a row. Uh, it's, it's insane. It's really crazy that Jumanji, you know, Welcome to the Jungle, is one of these films that I feel like, I don't know on how many people's radars it was when it first came out. You know, there was a lot of that, like, oh, really? Do we really need another Jumanji movie? You know, the Robin Williams one is considered a classic for people of a certain generation. And it seemed like, you know, does anybody want this? And wow, the box office result, as it's already shot past $700 million worldwide, it's a resounding, yes, we want this, we love this. It, and it only cost 90 million bucks to make. Like I pointed out last week, that's practically an indie movie. So for a $90 million movie to be doing these kinds of numbers is absolutely insane. And Deadline is projecting that it's going to make another 15 or $16 million here domestically to take the top spot. Then it'll be followed in second place by that 12 Strong movie, which they're thinking is going to make somewhere in the vicinity of, I think, 12 or $13 million. And then it's going to be in third place with Den of Thieves. They think Den of Thieves is going to be in the high single digits. So we'll see how, uh, how close they are on these, uh, on these estimates. But right now, you know, the, the, in short, they're saying that Jumanji is going to pull off 16. They're saying 12 Strong is going to pull in, you know, possibly up to 15. And Den of Thieves will do single digits. So we shall see. That is your weekend forecast. I personally think you'd be better off if you, I mean, you know, go see Jumanji. It looks like a lot of fun. It's still on my radar and I really do want to see it. But in terms of these wide releases, I would say your time would be better spent looking at some of these other award season, you know, prestigious movies. I, you know, I think you, you'll get a lot more out of The Shape of Water. You'll get a lot more out of Call Me By Your Name. You'll get a lot more out of I, Tanya than you'll get out of 12 Strong or uh, 
Den of Thieves. And like I said, just go see Heat instead. Uh, right now, I also got to send uh, a special thank you out. You know, I always say that whenever I get a new review, I'm going to read it out loud and, and specially thank the person who wrote it. And this week, the El Fanboy podcast got another good review. This comes from David, I don't know if it's Coker or Kotcher, but the name of the review is just Hooked. And he gave a five-star review. He says, first listen to him when he had Mark Miller on his show. What I love about Mario is as much of a fanboy he is like me, he is also rational and looks at things realistically. He can all... He can also have different opinions that might be different than many of the fanboy masses out there, and ultimately, that is why I respect him. Not to mention that he's also entertaining and pretty funny. (laughs) Thank you, I'm pretty funny. Highly recommend to anyone who is a comic book movie and sci-fi fan that's in the loop of related current events. It's nice to listen to people who are saying probably what you're thinking. I also highly suggest you follow him on Twitter. So thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, David. Uh, you've been, uh, I've also, I, I've, I've felt your presence very strongly there on Twitter, so do thank you for liking and retweeting my stuff, and thanks for coming on board the L Fanboy train. So if anyone, you know, I, I'm still accepting reviews for this. Remember, th- this show is still not going anywhere. Obviously, I'm tweaking the format, and I, I'm toying with adding some other segments and, and trying to change it up a little bit, but despite the fact that Revengers is now the official podcast of the uh, RevengeOfTheFans.com, you know, El Fanboy shall continue. So please leave reviews there. If you have already listened to the Revengers podcast, try to get a review there as well. Listen, I, I don't want to spread you guys thin, but, you know, right now word of mouth is everything. So positive reviews and retweets and sharing, you know, that's where it's at right now. So keep tweeting, you know, hashtag RTF, Revenge of the Fans, to try to spread our headlines and our, 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 uh, our influence out there, and continue to tell your friends about the El Fanboy podcast, because my brothers and sisters, I'm not going anywhere. So um, I think that's it for me. Keep checking the site. I've got some very, very exciting things to share with you, including something that came in in the middle of this recording that I now have to figure out if I can write about it today or if I have to wait until, uh, you know, to avoid getting anyone in trouble. That's the issue when you get exclusive news because you can't share it because if only one other person really knows about it, then you get that person fired. These are all the kinds of fun things that I have to figure out. But either way, thank you for listening to the show. And uh, until next week, adios. Adios.